0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to be spiritually prepared uh, for studying the word this evening to make sure you're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer so you can uh, confess any uh, sins that you need to to the Lord and he instantly forgives us forgives us, wipes the slate clean, so that we can move forward in our spiritual growth. Uh, So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this evening that we can come together to study your word, and as we get into this uh, wonderful epistle to the Romans, and as we study and think through what Uh, Paul so logically and precisely develops for us. We pray that we can uh, concentrate, that we can think, and that we can uh, clearly understand these truths and their significance for our thinking and for the way we live. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, tonight we're going to get into Romans chapter 1, just probably no further than the first couple of verses, where we get into uh, the introductory summation of the gospel. goes on into verses 3 and 4, but I don't think that we will get quite through uh, this whole section as he narrows in on the gospel. Now, remember I pointed out last time, and I want to clarify this because it's always funny, some people don't hear some things, some people think they hear things that I didn't say, some people uh, uh, think that they hear things that uh, I did say, but they heard them wrong, it's amazing what happens in verbal communication. I've often thought I really need to stop ten minutes early, have a Q and A period, because then I would find out that half the congregation never understood anything that I said, and but I would be repeating everything way too much, and we'd all get bored and go home. So, but it, it's really funny when I hear some people repeat back to me some things that I've said. And I went, "Huh? I didn't say that." The purpose that Paul has for writing Romans is to clarify the relationship of the righteousness of God to the human race and how the human race, fallen in sin, which he uh, details in the second half of chapter 1, chapter two, first half of chapter 3, the entire human race including the moral person who thinks that he is good enough to somehow uh, gain God's approval, including the uh, Jewish person who has the law, who has circumcision, who has the covenants and relies upon those. Paul concludes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned, it is necessary for someone other than a human being to provide the kind of righteousness that we need in order to, uh, gain favor with God. We can't do it on our own. As Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So that is, he's not talking about all of our works of unrighteousness, but all of our works of righteousness. So Isaiah says the best that we do is still far below the standard of God's righteousness. Righteousness always refers to the standard of God, which is his own standard of uh, of holiness and perfection. now, in verse fifteen um, excuse me in chapter one, verse seventeen, Paul says, "For in it that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, and this introduces at the beginning a key doctrine in Romans, which is the doctrine of justification by faith. And at that point, I talked about the fact, I want to make sure everybody understands this, because I I think some sheep got upset last time. Um, I want to make sure everybody understands why I said what I said, and what I didn't say. Uh, I was pointing out that we we live in a world today, as we were talking about before right before class, with a couple of the people who'd been up to pre trib and heard some speakers up there say some things that are different from anything they've ever heard taught before and they didn't agree with, and that's fine. And I don't agree with some of the things they heard either. Um, that there seems to be, there's always different opinions on different things. I mean, no two pastors have ever agreed on anything. Chafer didn't agree with Schofield on everything. Uh, Ryrie certainly disagreed on certain key elements from both Walvoord and Chafer. Walverd was pretty close to agreeing with Chafer all the time, except I always remember a funny story when uh, uh, Dr. Walvoord abridged the, uh, Chafer's systematic theology, which was something a lot of people questioned, but he took that large uh, eight-volume work that, that Chafer had written on systematic theology and cut it down to two volumes. And he did that by eliminating a lot of quotes, but also, you know, tightening up some of the explanations. But John Hanna sat down and read through a number of things, and Dr. Hanna was um, uh, the head of the Historical Theology Department of Dallas, under whom I did my doctoral work. And he went to Dr. Walver and he said, Dr. Walver, this is really interesting because there are places in the abridged version of Chafer's systematic theology where you've changed what Chafer said. And Dr. Walver just looked at him and in all humility just said, well, Dr. Chafer was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So there's always these differences of opinion and we just can't get, no matter how uh, emotionally committed we may be to some view or another, we just can't get too upset when we hear a pastor or a theologian or somebody say something that is different from what we've always heard or what we uh, what we believe to be true, everybody has a right to be wrong, and so we we want to uh, defend their right to be wrong and pray that someday they'll they'll be right. Um, but within a certain context of a premillennial, pre-trib dispensational, free grace theology, there's differences of opinion, but. And within evangelicalism as a whole, there are differences of opinion. But there are things going on and have been going on for the last 20 or 30, 40 years that are, I believe, outside, clearly outside of the boundaries of of evangelicalism and a belief in the inerrant infallible scripture. I'm running down a lot of rabbit trails. I know that, but I think you'll find some of this a little interesting in the 70s, the big challenge was, is the Bible inerrant and infallible? And so there were a couple of large congresses or convocations held uh, where many evangelical uh, ac- academics and pastors from Dallas Seminary, Talbot Seminary, um, a Western Conservative Baptist, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Grace Evangel- Grace Seminary in Winona Lake, got together and they carved out what was known as the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, which was about a uh, 25, 30-page detailed doctrinal statement on the doctrine of inerrancy. That was excellent. But what they realized in the midst of carving out that was that it's one thing to say that you believe that in the original manuscripts, the Bible was the writers of Scripture were inspired by God, and you believe that Genesis 1, uh, the entire, entirety of Genesis 1-1 is the inerrant, infallible word of God. But then what does it mean? And somebody comes along and says, well, I think this was all symbolic language, and it's not literal days, and it uh, doesn't indicate anything like a young earth, and it doesn't indicate consecutive days, and these are just days of Revelation. And they realized that, that the real danger is that, that even though people subscribe to inerrancy, they can go right into full-bore heresy by it with a bad hermeneutic. And two years later, the same group got together to try to work on the Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics, and it never really flew. A number of books got printed on hermeneutics, but they never really developed um, as binding and as significant a statement on hermeneutics because there just wasn't uh, agreement on how to interpret uh, what those principles of interpretation were. That's why we had um, a few years ago we had Bob Thomas, Dr. Robert Thomas, speak at the Chafer Conference because he is one of the very best and, and, and most conservative uh, uh, students of the whole issue of hermeneutics over the last several years and since he's about 83 or 84 years old uh, we wanted to catch him while he could still communicate these wonderful things that he's learned over the years but there are you know, dozens of other seminary professors in good schools who really disagree with him on almost every point he made about hermeneutics that leaves you in the pew going well if they don't know how do we know don't worry about it when you live in when we live in an era of apostasy and you can go to different generations of apostasy this is what happens and that's the sad thing is that you get people in the pew who become the casualties because of academic arrogance at the seminaries and a lot of different influences come on men uh, who are in uh, those kind of positions, teaching in the seminary? They want to come up with a new discovery, justify their paycheck, write a new book, do some, you know, have some great insight. There are many who just want to teach what they were taught, but many others have to come up with something new. We want to solve this problem, do whatever, and that can lead to lots of different problems. One problem that I mentioned last time that first became. Uh, first was published in the early 80s was this view called this called the New Perspectives on Paul. And it really, I, I read about it, heard about it vaguely in the late 90s, but that just wasn't something that I was focused on. And it has really taken off and become a major, major issue, area of academic dispute among evangelicals today. And frankly, I have serious problems with how somebody who holds to the views of the new perspectives on Paul can can truly, genuinely hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. The way they do it is because they develop and invent, basically, a new hermeneutic, which is what uh, this uh, Anglican bishop, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, has done. And he's very prolific, as I pointed out. He's written a number of books. He's a preterist, which means that he believes that Biblical prophecy related to uh, end-time events, uh, Matthew 24, Daniel's 70th week, these things all occurred uh, symbolically in reference to uh, uh, the judgment on Israel in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple. He also believes, as I pointed out last time, that there's no imputation of righteousness for justification. Well, if we're not justified by an imputation of Jesus' righteousness, then we're justified by some sort of righteousness on our own, which means somehow we develop works of righteousness for which, which ultimately become the basis uh, for our, our salvation. And then I pointed out, I've just got to clarify all this, another rabbit trail. One person can say five sentences that are wrong, and it takes five hours to show why they're wrong. So just bear with me. Um, somebody says, well, I thought Robbie said this. No. what I said was there's a pastor that we ordained, uh, several of us ordained back in the early 90s, who's gone in, got heavily influenced by N.T. Wright. He has a church up in, up in Pittsburgh. Uh, I've read his material, seen his material. That's without dispute. I then, all I said then was that one of the men from that church took a church down in Corpus, And then I said, direct quote, whether he agrees with him or not, I don't know, because I don't. And then I said, but we do have people in this congregation who have family and friends who are in that church up in Pennsylvania, up in Pittsburgh. And they're saying, what are you – they're hearing their kids come home and say, well, teach these things. Well, what are you getting this – what does this mean? What, and so you, my, pat, as, as my role as a pastor is I need to alert you to these problems. I'm not judging other pastors. I'm judging doctrine. And you need to be aware of what these areas of false teaching are so that you can, A, ask the right questions when you're in conversation with those who have been influenced uh, by some of these things. If you're concerned that a pastor that you know may be influenced by this, you need to know the right questions to ask or the right phrases to listen for so that you can, uh, have the discernment and the perception to know when something it perhaps isn't going, uh, in the direction that it is going. But I was, uh, you know, I did not make any statements about, negative statements about the, t- I don't have any idea what the guy down in Corpus teaches. I just know that, that there's a connection there and, and whenever I see connections, my radar always goes into a little more sensitive position so that I can make sure that there's not a problem. Okay. That's enough for that. Let's go to Romans 1-1. Introduction. The first 17 verses of Romans 1 uh introduce us to the basic ideas and themes that Paul is going to develop in Romans. A point of a point of understanding in any epistle, any piece of literature that's well written, you have an introduction and you have a conclusion. Your introductory statements often are repeated, clarified, uh, are gone over again in some way in the conclusion. Your introduction is going to orient and focus your readers on the basic ideas that you're going to develop within the body of the literature, and then the conclusion is going to tie it all together. The same is true for uh, most of the books of the Bible. The, 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 these books in the Bible are considered by scholars, whether they're Christian or not, to be among the greatest literature, as lit, just as literature, in all of the history of mankind. And Romans is considered to be uh, the best of its type of literature in all of history. It is one of the most tightly reasoned and argued uh, treatises on doctrine ever written uh, by man. And the Apostle Paul is certainly considered by those who are Pauline scholars, those who have read and studied uh, paul, in the original greek and, and and read other ancient writers in the original Greek that there's no no one better there's nothing superior, uh, no writings that are superior to the apostle paul and that 's a generic statement, not necessarily made by people who are uh, evangelical theologians uh, it 's just a recognition of the significance of this literature, so Paul clearly introduces. Uh, these the main ideas that he and the main themes that he's going to cover within the epistle in his opening introduction, and he begins with an opening in verse uh, one, a salutation that is interrupted by an anacoluthon. Now, if you're not familiar with the word anacoluthon, it's just a uh, fancy word for rabbit trail, going off on a side track. And Paul typically has Anakaluth, and sometimes they last a couple of chapters. Uh, so he begins with his standard opening statement, but he, what you'll find in most of the introductions and in most of the letters, he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ and Timothy to the church in Galatia or to the church in Colossae or whatever. It's all covered in one verse, two at the most, but he doesn't get around to telling us who, to whom he is writing until verse seven. So he has a... An Anacoluthon, a rabbit trail from the middle of verse 1 down through the end of verse 6, in which he emphasizes some of the main ideas that he's going to cover and develop within the body of this epistle. He begins by identifying who he is as the Apostle Paul, that he is known to the congregation in Rome, not because he has been there. This is the only epistle that Paul wrote to a group, to who, with whom he had no uh, uh, face-to-face contact. He had never been to Rome. He knew everybody or every church, other church that uh, that he had written. He had been in those those areas, but Rome uh, was unique. Now we're going to study a lot about the Apostle Paul when we get into um, the. The book of Acts is where we get most of the biographical information that we have on the Apostle Paul, and we'll cover him a little more as we get into Colossians, which I'll probably start wait and start after I come back uh, come back from Kiev. But I want to just summarize some things so that you can get the basic structure of the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and some of this you have in some of the handouts I gave in uh, in in the uh, Acts study on a Tuesday night. You have the chronology there, and so you can put together a lot of this. The Apostle Paul was originally born Saul. Saul was his uh, Aramaic name, Salus, and he probably had a a middle name, Paulus, and he was from Tarsus, and this gives us a map of the West... uh, uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean, the area, all this area around the Mediterranean is known as the Levant. We have the island of Cyprus out there um, in the Med, and to the north of Cyprus we have with a red dot there showing the location of the city of uh, of Tarsus. Up here we have uh, the, the, the huge mountain range that runs, ran across the, the southwestern part of Turkey, and there was a major pass that went through the mountains here known as the uh, Cilician Gates. Tarsus is located on a crossroads. You had your southern trade route coming up uh, through Israel, Phoenicia, Syria, and would come up into Cilicia here and intersect with your major east-west routes. So Tarsus was not far from those intersections, and so it was a large city. It was influenced by people, travelers, businessmen who came from all over, Uh, What was at this point the Roman Empire, but as the Greeks had swept through this area in centuries past and before them the Persians had come through this area and before them the uh, Babylonians, there were a lot of different uh, cultural influences uh, in the city of Tarsus uh, where, where Paul was born here 's a depiction of the mountains to the north of Tarsus that you can see from the from the city they 're rather high, so you see that it had some beautiful scenery there and then here 's a depiction of one of the old Roman roads streets inside of, uh, of a modern, uh, inside of modern Tarsus, part of what they have uh, excavated. so when we look at the life of the apostle Paul, he was born somewhere between um, Somewhere between like 4 or 5 A.D. on the one hand and probably uh, 15 on the other hand. If the, um, uh, yeah, the first place that Paul is mentioned is in the martyrdom of Stephen at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter, uh, I believe it's at the end of chapter 7. And Paul is mentioned there. And Acts seven fifty eight as a young man standing by, uh, watch holding the garments of those who are stoning Stephen. So he's called a young man. Now a young man is not a technical term. Uh, I walked in here today, saw Dan, said, "Hey, young man, how are you doing?" Now, that's this is probably a more literal use of the phrase young man, and uh, <laughs> so. Paul was probably between the age of of 18 and 30. So that's a 12 year spread. We don't really know how exactly how old he was uh, at the time, but there are some hints uh, that do give us these parameters in Scripture. It's indicated that um, based on where he was, when he left Jerusalem, when he was uh, left Damascus, and who was ruling in Damascus, that he had to have left Damascus uh, before A.D. 40. And so that means that, uh, and then if Jesus is crucified in A.D. 33, and most uh, scholars in chronology place the stoning of Stephen somewhere in A.D. 35, that if he's a young man of, let's say, uh, 18 in A.D. 35, then that would mean that he was born somewhere around uh, A.D. 17. If he was 12 years older, then he would have been born somewhere around um, 5. So that gives us a, a parameter for his age, which would mean that he would be anywhere from... If he's 18 in AD 35, then he would have been uh, 13 or 14, he would have just come, just about the time he came to Jerusalem. Uh, he came when he was 14 to study under Gamaliel. We know that uh, this from Scripture in Acts 22, uh, 3, Gamaliel, referred to as Gamaliel the First, we know of through uh, Josephus and other extra biblical writings, was one of the most uh, renowned uh, rabbis of that generation and Paul would have, uh, was sent by his father to study under, under Gamaliel and the age at which that would have occurred would have been when he was about 14 years of age. And so if he was just 18 or 19, he would have only been in Jerusalem four or five years he would have arrived approximately the time that Jesus began his public ministry, a little bit before, a little bit after. Now, if he was a little older, he would have already been in Jerusalem for maybe uh, seven or eight years before Jesus began his public ministry. And so he would have been part of the uh, rabbinical school that was being, uh, that was trained, being trained under the teaching of Gamaliel. And so he, he w- I think it's a fair deduction to say that with all of the things that were going on around the ministry of Jesus, all of the discussion, all of the, the way John the Baptist ministry, uh, Luke tells us, uh, that everyone went out to the Jordan to uh, be baptized by John. Now, now they, he didn't mean every single individual, but everybody heard about these things. It was uh, it was uh, common street talk. Who's this guy out in the Jordan Valley baptizing people? And then when Jesus began to teach the same thing, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You had people. Who is he? Is he this? Is this the Messiah? And these questions were being raised. And so I think that uh, it would almost be. Uh, unrealistic to think that Paul, being in Jerusalem during this time, would not have been aware of the presence and the teaching related to, to Jesus. We just can't prove it, but it's a, I think it's a fair deduction based on the, uh, based on the chronology. So Paul came to, um, Jerusalem when he was about 14 years of age. He had probably had some sort of training already in uh, in Tarsus, Tarsus had a university that was uh, highly respected throughout the um, throughout the ancient world, and it's very likely many scholars believe. Uh, with varying degrees of certainty that the Apostle Paul possibly was educated there because he demonstrates such a tremendous skill with language and logic and rhetoric and uh, other other things that are evident within his writing that this would not have all just been the result of his rabbinical training, but he had some education uh, prior to that. Uh, the, uh, Strabo writes that the... Uh, Uh, The educational center there in Tarsus was superior to that. In Athens, it was superior to Alexandria, and it was superior to anything in Rome. So uh, Paul would have grown up in that sort of environment. It was also a major center for tent making. And it's believed his father probably had a major, uh, commercial enterprise in make, manufacturing tents. And we often think of Paul because he knew he, we know that he was a tent maker on the side. I don't know that he was necessarily the one who was doing the sewing. He would have hired the people who would have made the, made the tents. And so his father to have been able to provide the kind of education he did for Paul to be able to send him to, uh, Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel would have been, uh, fairly, fairly wealthy. And this is also evidenced by the fact that, uh, Paul had a Roman citizenship and that would have come through his, uh, through his father. So Paul, we can assume that Paul came from a fairly well-to-do um, family of, of uh, merchants who manufactured tents. This area of Silesia that where Tarsus was located, was just south of an area where they raised a tremendous amount of sheep and goats and had uh, uh, large wool production, which was used in the uh, manufacture of the cloth uh, for the tents. And so all of this was. Things that God and his providence used in preparing this young man Saul for uh, what would be his future ministry uh, if paul was um, so paul somewhere between twenty and thirty let's say when uh, when he is um, uh, when he's there observing stephen's um, uh, martyrdom, and then that was in a d thirty five and by the time that Paul wrote uh Romans. Uh, which is in the winter of 56 to 57, he would be uh, approximately 20 years older. So he's somewhere between 40 and 50 at the time that he wrote uh, this epistle to the Romans from uh, the location there uh, in Corinth. Now, Paul speaks of himself of three things that I have indicated there by the uh, little purple numbers 1, 2, and 3. First of all, he talks of himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Second thing that he says is that he was called to be an apostle. And third, he said that he was separated to the gospel of God. So in these verses, Paul emphasizes two basic things about himself. He emphasizes, first of all, his mission. His mission is related to his commission by Jesus Christ to be an apostle to take the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. And that is his message, the gospel. And that is what he explains in the epistle to the Romans. So here in the introduction, Paul is going to emphasize his mission as an apostle and his message of the gospel. Now, the first thing that he says about himself is that he is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. This is the Greek word doulos. And doulos was a basic word that could mean either a servant who was someone in that position of their own free will or a slave, someone who was uh, not necessarily there of their own free will. And his use of the phrase that he is a servant of Jesus Christ uh, is a has echoes of the phrase that is used again and again by the prophets in the Old Testament that they were servants of Yahweh. Servants of the Lord. Moses is the first that is called a servant of the Lord. And as you read through the Old Testament, you read various prophets, and this term is used to them that they are servants of the Lord. And what this emphasizes is that their recognition that they were here on the earth for the primary purpose, to serve the Lord and not to serve their own desires, not to pursue their own interest, not to pursue their own agenda, but they were here, they were given a divine mission to be carried out, uh, in terms of what God had instructed them. And so the fact that he calls himself a bondservant of Christ, first and foremost, is a recognition that he was, had reached a point in his spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that he is, his whole life's purpose is subordinate to God's purpose Uh, for his life. But this word doulos is also used in a, I think, a a more fundamental concept in relation to the spiritual life. Paul had to reach this point first before uh, he would reach a more mature expression of being a servant of God, just as we all do. And this is given in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Remember Romans 6, 7, and 8 uh, describe the spiritual life. Romans chapter 6 talks about how the believer's relationship to sin and the sin nature that we are dead to sin. Romans chapter 7 talks about the believer's relationship to the law, that the law is not a means of spiritual growth. And Romans chapter 8 talks about the relationship of the believer, the growing believer, to the Holy Spirit. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 focus on the Christian life. Justification is covered in 3 through 5, and that topic is over with. How to be justified before God has been dealt with. Now uh, the focus in 6, 7, and 8 is how does the justified person live out the righteousness of God in his life. And so Paul uh, states in verse 19 about the fact that we were originally born slaves of unrighteousness, but now that we are dead to sin, every believer is to be a slave to righteousness. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that is, as an unbeliever, and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. I would translate that, slaves of righteousness for sanctification. So Paul had to first come to a point in his spiritual growth where he learned that he had a new master. It wasn't the sin nature it wasn't his own self-centeredness. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, because at the cross, at the moment he trusted Christ, there is this break with the sin nature, that tyranny is broken. We are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, which is what he says earlier in uh, verse 12, Romans six twelve, And then now we are to live as slaves of righteousness. Once he, you get to that point in terms of your spiritual growth, then being a servant of God becomes the natural next step as you recognize we're here to serve God and not our own agenda. The second thing that he says is that we're called to be an apostle, called to be an apostle. The noun that he uses here uh, for call, that's translated called kletos is one of two or three different ways Paul expresses this idea of being designated something by God. And I think that's the best way to translate it. He is designated, he is, he's given a commission as an apostle. That's what it means to be called to be an apostle. Actually, it doesn't have to be in there in the original. It says called an apostle. Designated at the point of salvation in um, Acts chapter 8 when the Lord, the resurrected, uh, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ appeared to uh, Saul, when he was going north to Damascus to arrest and to torture and to kill a number of Christians uh, in Damascus, uh, the ascended, glorified, resurrected, resurrected, ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a bright light and said, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" Now his companions couldn't clearly understand what it was that they were hearing, but they did hear a voice. That's to point out this was objective, but since Jesus wasn't talking to them, they didn't need to listen in on the conversation. They didn't need to be eavesdroppers. But that they heard a noise and saw the light tells us that this wasn't what my uh, freshman Western civilization professor told me it was in college, a subjective Uh, nervous breakdown on the part of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't having some sort of inner uh, breakdown and some sort of inner experience. It had an external objective reality. Those with him saw the light and heard the sound of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an objective thing. They just didn't know what Jesus said because it wasn't any of their business. So when uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, and told him. He then gave him orders to go to um, go to Damascus, where he would be uh, his eyes would be healed and his sight would be restored. And the Lord Jesus Christ then, to- at that point, told him that he would be his messenger to the Gentiles. So the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned the Apostle Paul for a specific task to take the gospel uh, to the Gentiles. And that is the essential meaning, the core meaning of this word apostolos that we find in the Greek. We studied this a little more when we were in Acts uh, chapter 1. But in in the New Testament, uh, an apostolos is a man who is officially commissioned by an authorizing agent. That can be Jesus Christ or it can be a local church or someone else. Uh, is officially commissioned by an authorizing agent and given the authority to perform a task. So in the New Testament, there are three different kinds of apostles. Three different kinds of apostles, and we distinguish them according to these three different categories. Who commissioned them? What What were they commissioned to do? And did the commissioning involve a spiritual gift? And that's how we distinguish between these three. So the first is uh, Jesus Christ commissioned the 12 disciples who were called apostles in Luke chapter 6 to take the gospel to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Remember, we went through that passage in Acts. They weren't to take uh, any clothes with them. They were, weren't supposed to take any money with them. They were just to take the clothes on their back uh, and their staff, and they were just to go to the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not to Gentiles at all, and um, and their message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's no spiritual gift involved. So that's not, they're called apostles, but it's not the same as, as what we have after the day of Pentecost. Then you have uh, Jesus Christ commissioning the twelve to go to the world. And this involved a spiritual gift that was given to them when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and the apostles had the spiritual gift of apostleship and it's a church age ministry. So you had a, an apostleship of Jesus in the uh, time during the incarnation of Christ that is related to the house of Israel but it's not a spiritual gift, it's not a church age uh, ministry at all then you have the church age ministry that began on the day of Pentecost that's related to this mission to the world and then the third way in which the term is used and it's applied to Barnabas and Junius and a number of other uh, leaders in the uh, early church who were not commissioned by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ They are commissioned by a local church, Antioch or the Jerusalem church or another congregation, and they are sent out as missionaries. And so that is an apostleship that is a lowercase apostleship. And because people get confused over these things, we don't want to go around and calling missionaries apostles. It doesn't involve a spiritual Uh, gift of apostleship they may have a spiritual gift of teaching or evangelism or pastor teacher but it wouldn't involve a a spiritual gift of apostleship there were three things that are stated in the scripture that are requirements uh, for someone to be an apostle paul had to defend his apostleship in several places first of all it is a gift that was given by the holy spirit they were appointed by christ uh, Jesus gave some, Ephesians 4, uh, uh, 4 11 and 12, G- Jesus gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, clearly emphasizing that it is Jesus who appointed the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers who are the leaders uh, of the church. They're gifted, he does that via the gifting by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 11. Secondly, an apostle needed to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, uh, or have seen the resurrected Christ, and and uh, and and commissioned by him. This is First Corinthians fifteen eight to nine, and uh, as well as Acts one uh, twenty two, and then third, uh, the apostle the apostleship was evidenced by. An endument with miraculous powers second corinthians twelve twelve he says that he performed the signs of the apostle performing signs and wonders uh, and miracles. I believe that the um, that the apostles had if you had the spiritual gift of apostle that included most of the other spiritual gifts, maybe not all of them, but you had a variety of those uh, those gifts to carry out your role as a uh as a leader as a foundation to the body of Christ to the edifice of the local of the church not local church universal church okay so paul first of all says he's a bond servant of Jesus Christ second he says he's designated as an apostle that apostolic ministry that came from the lord Jesus Christ and then third he says that he was separated to the gospel of god separated to the gospel of god and this is the greek word here aphorizo it is a part an aorist participle now we don't have a main verb here um, so it's not um uh, so it's hard to tell just what, what the grammatical function of this is. He, Paul, uh, by being, it could, could be just a, an instrumental. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle, uh, by being separated to the gospel of God. That would be an instrumental part, par, uh, participle. Or it could be a temporal participle. He was called to be an apostle when he was separated, uh, to the gospel of God. Uh, either one of those ideas would, uh, would, would work. But there's a connection between his calling to be an apostle and his, uh, being separated, uh, uh appointed to the gospel of God. The ideas behind the word afferizo is primarily that which is separate or separated for some, some purpose. Uh, the idea of being appointed, it's that he is detached from the world and he's attached to the Gospel are united to the cause of the Gospel, so in that first verse, he says uh, in, in just three phrases, he says a lot about who he is. He identifies himself first and foremost in a what means of humility by saying that he is a slave or bond servant to jesus christ that 's the first thing the second thing he focuses on then is his mission he 's called an apostle, which also emphasizes his authority to say the things that he is going to say and to explain and articulate the doctrine that he is going to articulate in this epistle. And that this calling to be uh to be an apostle is related to his being united to the cause of the gospel. And as soon as he mentions the word gospel, then he is going to say some things about what the gospel is. And this is indicated in the next uh the next three verses. And so it's uh, uh, set up by a relative clause, you have a relative participle at the beginning of verse 2, which begins, which he promised, separated to the gospel of God, the which there refers back to the gospel. It is the gospel that God promised before, that is, in times past, Similar. Uh, type idea as that that is stated in Hebrews 1, one that in times past through the apostles and the fathers, I mean through the prophets and the fathers, God has spoken to us. So it, again, he's talking about in times past, God promised before, that is in times past, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he's going to, that's his main thought, the gospel which God promised, through the Old Testament prophets that's his focal point the gospel didn't didn't start with Paul you can read all kinds of liberal scholars from the 19th century up to the present who will argue that Jesus taught one thing the apostle Paul changed it all and Christianity today is the uh, is horrible because it's the invention of this uh, terrible uh, obsessive compulsive apostle Paul and that's sort of a standard liberal approach to Paul. Paul was a misogynist. He hated women. Paul was uh, against the Jews. He was uh, borderline anti-Semitic and all of this other stuff that doesn't hold true if you actually read what he says. And they try to draw this dichotomy between Paul uh, and Jesus. But that's not what Paul says. Paul is speaking exactly what Jesus says, and it's very clear that's what he is doing. And so he ties his message back to the Old Testament, didn't originate with me. He says this came from the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, and at the time that he's writing Romans, the term Holy Scriptures would refer to what? The Hebrew Bible. It wouldn't refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They haven't been written yet. Matthew might have been, uh, but the others had not been written yet. uh, Paul has written about uh, six or seven epistles at this point. And so, um and and maybe uh, one or two others had been written, but that was it. So you just had a few New Testament books that had been written by the time Paul wrote Romans, and so he's not referring specifically to the New Testament. He's talking about the prophets, which is an Old Testament gift, in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament. Now, this was a standard operating procedure uh, within the movement of those who understood and believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised and foretold in the Old Testament. And, in fact, Jesus used this exact approach uh, many times in his ministry, but one of the most obvious, one of the most clear occurred after his resurrection when he appeared to two disciples, one of whom was named uh, Cleopas, on their way to a small village outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And when he shows up and he, they're walking, uh, home and he joins them, they're not sure who he is, they don't recognize him, apparently he cloaked his, his, uh, identity, so they didn't see who he was, they didn't recognize him, and he began to talk to them about what had been going on in Jerusalem. So they tell him what had happened, they talk about how, uh, Jesus had claimed to be the Messiah, but he was arrested, he was crucified, uh, they haven't heard about the resurrection yet, so they're despondent, they're discouraged, they're going home. And he uh, said to them at that point in, in Luke 24:44, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He is identifying who he is. Uh, while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So he points out that everything that he did is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, clearly saying that there are numerous statements in the Old Testament that point to the Messiah so that when the Messiah comes, the Jews would be able to recognize him as the Messiah. And so verse 45, he said, "...and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures." And then he said to them in verse 46, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Now, I pointed out on Tuesday night in the Acts class that it's been interesting that in the, <clears throat> in the last uh, 20, 30 years or 40 years since I first really became a serious student of the scripture, that there has be, become a growing movement among uh, some evangelical scholars to deny the fact that there's any real uh, prophecy in the Old Testament related to the Messiah. That kind of surprised some people. There was a paper that I pointed out that was given at the ETS conference this last uh, uh, November, just about uh, uh, three weeks ago, where one of the professors from Dallas Seminary argued that there were no messianic prophecies in the, in the old testament where did this where did all of this come from well it's it's interesting the historical connections but this isn't really new to this generation there were uh, others earlier on in the 20th century who were moving in this direction it's really pushed from uh, a direction of, uh, of um, more of a, uh, an anti-supernatural approach to Scripture, which is really odd because evangelicals are usually uh, emphasized as those who believe in the supernatural involvement of God. But what you have now is because of the influence of, of rationalism in higher education today, uh, there is this trend, and it, it mirrors what happened at the into the middle of the end of the nineteenth century to remove uh, the supernatural predictive elements of scripture, and what they do is they follow a pattern of introducing looking at these prophecies and saying these were all fulfilled historically they weren 't talking about a future messiah; they were talking about something that 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 was fulfilled. Uh, historically, uh, these things that we 're talking about, for example genesis three fifteen uh, Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen is a passage that we've talked about a lot. It has historically been referred to by um, uh, bible believing Christians as the proto evangelium the uh, that's Latin for the first indication of the gospel evangelium for evangel- uh, evangelists. Evangelism or the good news, and in Genesis three fourteen and fifteen, God addresses the serpent and said, "Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on your head, and you shall bruise his heel." And so, traditionally historically, this has been understood as a messianic promise. It was understood as a messianic promise in the Jewish midrashes written at the time of Christ. Now, it took, in within rabbinic theology, it took a thousand years before the rabbis, uh, some rabbis around 1,000, began to... Um, make serious inroads into doing what the same thing that I'm saying is happening today trying to make these prophecies uh um, try to unprophesy the prophecies and make them refer to something historical and one of the uh, well-known uh, rabbis of the around 1000 AD uh said that well all this refers to all this does is mean is that there's going to be a measure of hostility and uh, Discomfort between human beings and snakes. That's all this is talking about. Now we laugh and we chuckle at that. But I know another professor in the Old Testament department at Dallas Seminary. I don't mean to be just dumping on Dallas. There are comparable figures at the other schools. Trust me, there are. I just don't know them as well. Uh, Dallas is where I went. I know these guys. I, I, you know, went to school with them, studied under them, and have read them. But there's also another professor in the Old Testament Department of Dallas, and he takes that same interpretation of Genesis three. The serpent in Genesis three isn't Satan. He's in print saying that. but and and what they do is they just deny what the clear indication from Revelation chapter twelve that when Satan is cast out of heaven, this is the dragon is Satan, the serpent of old. And clearly identifying the serpent of Genesis three with the dragon and with, with Satan, but they don't do that. They want to. There, there's this movement to de, I mean, to, to just remove the Messiah from the Old Testament. It happened within Judaism. But you go back into uh, the rabbis at the time of Christ and rabbin, much of the rabbinical writings for the first thousand years after Christ, and they recognize all of these traditional passages I have up here on the screen are messianic, but the movement for the last thousand years in Judaism has been to uh, interpret these as something that happened historically, that, for example, um, uh, the Davidic covenant was just fulfilled by Solomon, that passages such as Psalm 2 and Psalm 23, these were fulfilled uh, in David's life, passages such as uh, uh, Isaiah 53. In fact, it was about that same time, a little after 1,000, that you had a, another famous rabbi by the name of uh, David Kimchi, and he was the first to come up with a, an, an alternate interpretation of Isaiah chapter 53 uh, so that uh, J- Jews would not think that that was talking about Jesus and making the, Isaiah 53 the suffering servant there refer to the nation. I want to close tonight by just briefly looking at Isaiah 53. I want to come back to this whole topic when we begin next time because it's a very important topic. But, in, but remember, Jesus said to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus that the Old Testament showed that he must suffer these things, that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would both rule and suffer. And Isaiah 53, and this early section, uh, second section of Isaiah, uh, focuses on the servant. This began in chapter 50, and in chapter 53, Isaiah wrote, this is, remember, Old Testament book, Hebrew Old Testament, who has believed our report, or and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, referring to this servant, this suffering servant in the future, he shall grow up before him, that is, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness, uh, when we see him. In other words, there's not, he's not going to walk around with a halo. Nobody's going to look at 14 year old Jesus and go, that's the Messiah. He's not going to look different. He's going to be a human, look like any other human being. Uh, verse three, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So he is rejected by his people, which is what happened with Jesus. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and the Hebrew words there are same words that are used in reference to uh the atonement of the uh, of animal sacrifices. So here the the words that are used indicate that this suffering servant is going to bear in his body our griefs, our sorrows Yet, in contrast to the fact that he's bearing our griefs and sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He's accused of being, you know, God's against you, God's punishing you. But, in contrast, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. A clear statement of substitutionary atonement. He was wounded for our transgressions, not his, our transgressions. This individual, it's not talking about a group. He was Uh, Wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. There we have the uh, synonymous parallelism in Hebrew poetry. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, or the punishment, for our peace, or in other words, the punishment in order that we might have peace was upon him. He's punished so that we can have peace. That's what Paul's going to talk about in Romans 5. that that the outgrowth of justification is peace with God. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, that is, the whipping that he took, uh, and he was whipped uh, by the Romans, uh, flagellated, uh, where you could expose the bones, it exposed the sinew, it exposed, uh, probably even exposed some of his internal organs, By his stripes we are healed. And that word for healing isn't talking about healing from disease. It is a word that was also used in reference to uh, salvation, then personal individual salvation before God. In 53.6 we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have gone astray. Isaiah is, this is the same Isaiah that said, all of our works of righteousness are as like filthy rags. We are all have gone astray, Isaiah says. We're all guilty. Same thing that Paul is saying. We have turned everyone to his own way. All, every, he's talking about, he's not leaving any exceptions. We've all gone our own way. And the Lord, talking about Yahweh here, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what Isaiah is saying is there's going to be this future servant And God is going to punish him for our sins. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus did not cry out or scream out with all the beatings, all the whippings that he received from from the Romans. And the only time he cried out was when God began to judge him for the sins of the world. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, as, was, as Jesus was taken from Pilate. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That's a poetic language, for he, he was killed. For the transgressions of my people. This is God talking. My people always refers to uh, to the Jews in the scripture. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He is the one who bears the sins of not only the Jewish people, but all, all Mankind. He and they made his grave with the wicked. Uh, he was crucified between the two thieves. Uh, he they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy Pharisee, gave his tomb to be uh, the tomb for the burial of Jesus. Uh, he was uh, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had n- done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was sinless. He was without sin, therefore, like a a Passover lamb without spot or blemish, he was qualified to go to the uh, cross to pay this sin penalty. No deceit was found in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord, it pleased God to bruise him. He, God, has put him to grief, put him meaning the Messiah, the suffering servant, when you make his soul an offering for sin. The suffering servant is the one whose soul was made an offering for sin. This is the prophecy from 500, 600 years before Christ. Uh, He shall see his seed; he shall prolong his days, and the blessing of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So this is the one of the most precise prophecies in the Old Testament. Yet you have some coming along today are saying, well, you know, this really is not talking at all, all about Jesus. Well, that has been debunked and proved to be wrong by many people. But we live in a horrible time today where people are just uh, eviscerating uh, the truth of the Scripture. And we just come back and you just read it, take it as plain normal sense, and it's very clear what this is talking about in terms of Jesus. So this is what Paul says here, that the Gospel is what God promised through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. And then next time we'll come back and we'll look at the remainder of what he says about the gospel in verses 3 uh, through 5. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things uh, this evening and to focus on uh, just the beginning of this epistle to reflect upon Paul's life and the fact that, like Paul, we all need to be servants, your servants, to carry out the mission that you've given us. And Father, we also need to understand that the uh, focal point of that is always the gospel. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.